Welcome to the Worship Theology Podcast. This is a space where we explore faith and um, praxis and kind of create bridges between worship and practice. Um, today, I'm super excited. We're actually here live at Dort University. Got some friends and students in the room. Um, and we also have Dr. Matthew Kamick, who's uh, the Richard Mao Chair of Faith and public life at Fuller Seminary. He's also got a fairly new book on work and worship and then a whole project of liturgies and songs connected that to with that book. Matthew, so cool to have you here. Man, it's great to be here. I'm I'm just so grateful, looking forward to the conversation. And we've had a great couple of days here on campus. And so, yeah, looking forward to jumping in. Well, special thanks to the Andreas Center who's helped bring you here to Dort today. Um, just, I'd love to just get to know you a little bit, particularly for those who listen. Um, this is a question we ask almost everyone. Share about a meaningful experience in Christian worship. What's what's a moment that was maybe moving or um, transformative or just something that comes quickly to mind? Oh, man. So, I mean, my faith really took shape, like for a lot of people in college, and we had a student-led uh, worship ministry at Whitworth College, a little Christian college out in uh, Washington State, now Whitworth University. Yes. So, you know, we're Made legit. Yeah. yeah. Um, and just... You know, these student-led worship services were just a really powerful thing for us on campus. Um, and it was at that time when, like, the mandolin was really becoming a big deal, you know? And I can remember just just sort of losing myself in, in those services. They Did you really play special. mandolin? No, no way, man. No, I, I have it. very little... You know, it's funny. I'm on a worship podcast. I've, I don't... I don't lead worship, I'm not a musician. Um, I come to this as a spouse of a worship director and a theologian myself, but... Um, yeah, those experiences early on were really transformative for me. Um, and as, as an intellectual, um, being sort of pulled out of my head a little bit is a is a wonderful gift that worship leaders have mm. have given me. Um, and I think about that quite a lot. So yeah, you mentioned you're not a worship leader. We should say you have at least three songwriting creds with Porter's Gate now. Uh-huh. Um, you are a, a, a public theologian in the Reformed yeah. tradition. Um, share maybe yeah maybe for our listeners if they don't really know what that term means. What is a public theologian? Yeah, and how might that intersect with the the study and practice of Christian worship? Yeah, so. Um, liturgical theology, worship, studies, I come to this kind of through the back door, uh, actually through a sense of real necessity. So um, I've worked in a number of different uh, marketplace ministries around the country where we care uh, and lead workers. Uh, One of those early experiences was in New York City um, at Redeemer Presbyterian Church. This is Tim Keller's church that he planted, um, ministering to workers throughout the city. And um, so we would have to design retreats uh, and conferences for workers. And really through those experiences, we started to say, okay, we need to lead worship. We need to have bring together some worship directors and create a worship space for workers where they can, where they can rest, they can be before the Lord, and they can sort of carry their work to God. And it was through the planning of those things that we found, man, we really don't have, we don't really know how to do this. And we started to talk to worship directors about, you know, w- what ideas do you have about how we can, you know, form these worship services that would be meaningful for workers who are exhausted, who are stressed, um, who don't know how to talk to God about what they're going through in their daily lives. And um, those conversations led us to ask more questions. And it was really more of the haunting questions that drove us into these kinds of things. Um, but backing up, you were asking yeah. about what is a public theologian? But it sounds like right. as you were, you were doing that work of a public theologian, yes. you saw this great need for the intersection of work and worship. But yeah, what is, what is a public theologian? Yeah, it's a, it's a cool title, right? A public <laughs> theologian. Um, I mean, the short answer is a public theologian is interested in the public consequences of Easter, right? So if Jesus is alive, what, what's the public consequences of that for how I go out and I engage politics, economics, the arts, culture? Um, what, what are the public ramifications of these kinds of things? And then, so there's worship questions that go along with that. Right? If I sing these songs, if I pray these prayers, if I, if I come to this table and I receive grace, what are the public consequences of that for me on Monday? How do I honor 
the words I've committed myself to on Sunday as I go out. And so that's what I mean of like, I come to worship studies through the back door of if you're going to shape and form faithful people to go out into the world, which is what I think a worship director's job is, um, what kinds of things do you need to be doing on a Sunday morning to equip them to go? And so I come, yeah, through the back door asking these questions and... Um, and the book itself, Work and Worship, is driven by haunting questions more than really clear answers of this is the solution, this is the fix. And we can talk about that too. Yeah, before we get into the, the book and some of those concepts, I'd love to yeah, hear just a little more about yourself, particularly the reform side of things. Yeah. You, you've even started talking about some words like formation and some, yeah, some worship leaders, that term may be new to them, particularly yeah. if they're not from a Reformed tradition or a liturgical tradition. Um, what are maybe some of the gifts of the Reformed tradition to corporate worship? Some of the things that, yeah, maybe listeners that aren't from that tradition or those that are just need to be reminded of, hey, here's some right. of our contributions to, to worship. Yeah, so in the Reformed tradition, uh, sometimes we can talk about it in terms of like walls and boundaries of like, you are only doing Reformed worship if you do these kinds of things. And I'd we can talk about that, uh, but I think it's it's better to think of like what is the well uh, of the Reformed tradition that you might come and, and drink from. And when I think about that, I think that one of the gifts the Reformed tradition can give to worship leaders is this understanding that the quote-unquote success of worship doesn't depend on you. It is, it is a work first and foremost of God. So it is God who gathers us. It is God who has done this great work. It is God's story. Um, and it is God who goes before and sends us out. And so the worship leader is more responsive. And sometimes I think worship leaders can have a bit of anxiety about their job and their responsibilities. That's not helpful, that it's like, my job to pump people up, or it's my job to give them a spiritual experience, or it's my job to make this thing go. And I think that if I think about like the primary well of the Reformed tradition is that it is, it is God's action, it's God's power, it's God's movement, um, and our task is to be responsive to that. And so I, I would hope that that would kind of help a worship leader sort of relax their shoulders a little bit mm. and, 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 and sort of lead through that grace um, without a, a sense of anxiety. I mm. think that might be the first thing. An example, tell me if the, you agree with it, like an example that comes to mind is sometimes those first worship words in a service. Like I know some traditions, countdown clock, and hey, it's so great to see you, you all look amazing, let's stand and worship and give yeah. God our highest praise. I mean, I've used those in certain contexts, yes. so I'm, I'm not judging anyone <laughs> that's, that's used those, but I, I've used those where maybe a reformed view or what, what you're bringing, like from across this city, the Father has gathered us for this moment and this season, let's respond and worship to him. Is that, I mean, a that's, little bit Yeah, of no, the, that's exactly right. And on top of that, you know, honestly, I've been in places where there, you get this sense that we have to invite God to show up as if he, he, he hasn't decided whether or not he's going to come. And maybe if we sing loud enough, the spirit will show up, right? If we sort of conjure a level of emotion and excitement, maybe by the end of the service, the Holy Spirit will come, as if there's sort of like this urgent magicness to it. And the Reformed tradition, I think, really flips that on its head in a way that can be very liberating, I think, for a, a younger worship leader. Mm. Yeah. And even those prayers of invocation in that Reformed tradition, they're still there at times, the come Holy Spirit, they're still in liturgies or in, yeah. uh, in kind of celebration of, of communion, but they are based on past covenant acts and promises of God too. Yeah. So when Israel says, oh, that you'd rend the heavens and come down, yeah. um, it's not, let's conjure this up. It's that you promise God yes. this would not happen and we would not see that. So mm, come well in a special way. So I think there's still a role for invocation in yes. those, those moments, but also it's not based on us conjuring up by playing E minor, C, G, and D in the right, <laughs> right volume and tempo. You, 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 
in our conversation, we could edit this out if you don't want, but you recently tweeted, I looked at your tweets for Uh this, and one that I found really interesting, it wasn't directed towards worship, but as someone who, me, who teaches and thinks about worship a lot, it, yeah, it it caused a lot of curiosity. Um, You tweeted a little bit of a comparison between Baptist and Reformed, um, particularly on the socio-political imaginations. Yeah. Um, but I think some of this connects with worship, and I'd love to hear your, your thoughts. Um, so this is from Matthew's Twitter. The Baptist social political imagination fits more naturally in America. Individualism, optimism, direct democracy, grassroots, guts, and free will. The reform struggles in America, covenantal, it's communal, it's realism, it's prudence, it's representation, intellectual providence. Again, you're, you're, you've tweeted that, I think, towards political context, right. but I think some of those, um, yeah, aspects of the ina- imaginations of these communities do impact the way those communities worship. Yeah. I'd be curious, yeah, what what you think about that. Do, do, you, do you think some of the ways they worship or they think about God or think about corporate worship together are different? Again, there's also Reformed Baptist and Baptist Reformed, yeah. so these are general, general categories. But how might some of those characteristics um, impact the way those communities worship? Right. Yeah. So I, I think at first when I saw that you were going to ask me this question, I was like, what on earth does this have to do with worship? But now I, now I really see what you're, what you're getting after there. Um, yeah, so the, the American spirit, if we can talk about it as a thing, is uh, it tends to be pretty individualistic, pretty optimistic, pretty focused on free will and empowerment and sort of being the captain of your future and um, you know, making your way, or striving west and, and, and making your future. And then how God works is God, God helps you. Um, God helps you go in the way that you want to go, and God frees you to be your true self. Um, and the Reformed tradition can affirm parts of that, but there are some parts where the Reformed tradition would want to uh, humble the American spirit, would want to take the individual and say, actually, you're part of a covenantal community, um, and it's not all about your desire and, and freedom from responsibility, but freedom into community. Um, and so, yeah, the re- Reformed worship is going to want to encourage Americans who enter into Reformed worship to remember their, their covenantal responsibility. I think here, here's an example of this. Um, Richard Mao talks about um, in the civil rights movement, he was part of a reformed church that was largely white, and uh, a black boy was baptized into this community. And everyone in the community stood up and said, this is our brother in Christ. We will love and serve and care and protect him, and we will, we will raise him um, in the faith as our brother. And what Richard Mao says is, now this is a white church that doesn't want to talk about politics, that doesn't want to talk about race. But um, their worship is communal and covenantal. And so whether they like it or not, um, they've just been implicated in race relations when they all stood up and said, this black boy is part of our family and we're responsible for him. And we're not free to just do our individual thing when we leave this church. We're actually we're committed to this covenantal community. Um, so there's that. I think the other part of Reformed worship is uh, Reformed folks have been pretty stubborn about the prayer of confession, that we're going to have a time where we name that uh, we are broken and rebellious, and we need to confess and bring this guilt forward. So it's less about just personal empowerment in the way that you want to go, but actually worship reminds you of your deep need for God. for God. And that's that's another aspect of yeah. it. So many more things we could talk about, but those are some of the first things that no, come thanks, to mind. No, thanks for, uh, yeah. yeah, kind of riffing on my <laughs> curious thoughts of your Twitter account. Um, let's, yeah, let's get into this work in worship. We've we've dabbled around it. What, what led you to write this book? You mentioned kind of a story just a few minutes ago about working in the marketplace, doing training, and wanting to bring resources to that community for worship and rest. But 
yeah, this book is yeah quite expansive, and and the sources you're drawing from Old Testament, yeah. early Christian history. What led to this this book? Yeah, expansive. It's a nice way. It's a long book. <laughs> um, I think, you know, some people write books because they are experts in something and they've got an answer that they want to share. And they're really excited because they feel like they found something that's great. Uh, Corey and I worked on this book. Corey's my, Corey Wilson, my co-author. We worked on this book because we were captured by a question. We were haunted by, a, by this question. Uh, number one, why is it that in the modern West we feel this massive chasm between our working lives in the world and our worship in, sanctuary, in the sanctuary? We feel it in our bones. We, we, it, it sort of haunts us. And so we were really captured by that, that problem. And then we were also captured by this, this uh, silence within worship literature and within worship conferences and books and classes of why why don't you know worship professors and worship authors talk about workers like i i can pull out the vast majority of worship textbooks say almost nothing about what these people do all week in the pews uh, often they sort of assume that people show up in church on a sunday as like this blank slate that you just get to put songs and prayers on them, but they've actually been participating in liturgies all week long in the marketplace that have been, you know, their bosses have been teaching them who they are and what they're for. So what is this silence about? And um, how do we understand this problem? But then more importantly, what on earth might we do about this? How might a worship leader begin to bridge this gap? between Sunday and Monday, that there are these, these workers sitting in the pews who are hurting, who come in on Sunday morning um, with exhaustion, with stress. I mean, the mental health statistics are staggering right now. Um, these workers come into worship with all of these questions and laments. And, you know, not to put too fine a point on it, but then they just receive these sort of heavenly spiritual songs that kind of wash over them, but don't actually speak to their lived experience. And so it was those haunting questions that drove Corey and I to dig into this. And um, like good Reformed people, we started with the Bible, right? <laughs> so we started with looking at the Old Testament and just saying, just, hey, blank slate, let's just say, how did the Israelites think about this. How did, they, how did they deal with this? Let's enter in this totally different world. And we found you know, some interesting things, but ultimately what drove us into this project are those questions and are those workers who we care about. Um, and so we really kind of carried their questions into the research. Yeah, and I mean, you draw again from Old Testament, the, some of the early Christian movements and Europe, Ephesus, things like that you're quoting. You're also drawing from the rich tradition of the global church. And so why do you think maybe, yeah, other believers in other parts of the world and other times haven't had this vast kind of maybe sacred-secular divide or Sunday-Monday divide, but particularly us in the West, us in America, really have had this massive chasm between what happens at 9, 10, 11 on a Sunday and what happens at 8, 9, 10 on a Monday. What's what's kind of led to that? Yeah. Um, so the divide is is thanks in two parts. One, it's the the culture, modern secular culture, has contributed to the divide, but also church leaders in the West have contributed to the divide. So in, on the cultural side, you have sort of secular modernity, which tells us that uh, religious things are private and personal and spiritual, and then you have like the real world, which is um, facts and reason and uh, secular categories. And these things need to remain separate from one another. So um, it is right and good that these things remain separate from one another. And so the culture is teaching the church to keep work and worship separate and that, and that that is a healthy way to live. And of course, we're finding out 
that this is actually a very unsustainable way to live. And what's fascinating, frankly, is that um, in corporate spaces across America, you see a flourishing of meditation, mindfulness, yoga, um, basically workers who are exhausted developing little spiritual practices to like hold themselves together. So non-Christians are trying really hard to connect work and worship actually out of this need um, simply because pure secular work is unsustainable. Like human beings can't hold it together. So capitalism itself is grinding. White collar sweatshops, even books in the 80s, 90s about work and life balance that just were constantly going. Yeah. Yeah. So if you go on like the Google Facebook campus, you'll find a lot of spiritual activity going on. Um, The other side is, the other side of the coin is uh, pastors and worship leaders in the West um, have contributed to this problem um, in some important ways. Uh, One is um, many of them are trying to hold on to Christendom. So as the church uh, shrinks in the West, pastors and worship leaders feel an anxiety and a fear. And so they orient Sunday morning around building up the institution of the church. So would you please come and serve in the Sunday school? Would you please come and serve in uh, whatever ministry or program? So worship becomes about like a rallying recruiting thing to all the stuff that I care about as the pastor, um, rather than equipping and sending you to do your mission in the world. So it becomes about institutional maintenance. So you, for example, you end a worship service, not, not blessing and sending people, but reminding them, here are the three things you, we need you to do for the church to like maintain things. And so seminary education becomes built around like um, maintaining the institution. Um, and it's quite natural, of course, that pastors and worship leaders think a lot about their work. Um, but then all of their examples and the things, it, it just sort of reorients people towards supporting the church rather than blessing and sending people to go. And, uh, and then finally, pastors and worship leaders are um, pretty disconnected from the workers and the workers' experiences who are you know, driving off to factories and offices into careers that they don't totally understand. So like if you can imagine like a a 14th century French village. <laughs> uh, small, small village, you've got the church in the center square, the marketplace is right there, and the fields are all around. The priest, every single day, is hanging out in the marketplace. He's going out into the fields. Um, he's talking with people. They're, they're moving in and out of one another's lives. right? And so he's aware of what's going on in the town. But for a pastor in the suburbs whose workers are driving into the city or who are working remotely for massive multinational corporations, um, it's very difficult for him to understand or connect with all of these Mm -hmm. different kinds of things. So Mm -hmm. that's another, there's so many reasons why work and worship have separated, but those are a few. Yeah, there's there's something about the shift from a parish pastor, a parish priest who's there in the community. (laughs) When you said that, it makes me think of like, is there a need for like an undercover pastor you know the old show the reality show undercover boss where yeah. <laughs> and, you, and they'd actually sometimes get to see the horrible work that some of their workers are doing and why they're not making money but also sometimes get to see the true life of what was happening day to day as yes. they're tucked away in their their office you know far far away sometimes from these com- companies but <laughs> do yeah is there a need for pastors worship leaders to be more connected with What's happening in the everyday lives of their people? What would that look like, or what could that look like? Absolutely. Uh, so it's very needed. Um, and I, f- I have found the wonderful way to do this. I mean, obviously, you can go and have lunch with your people in their workplace rather than asking them to come to you in your office. I mean, that's a very easy, quick thing. Yeah. But um, it does shape, shape the conversation and who yes. sees you and who you connect with. And- yeah. And then it's just about developing a pastoral curiosity where you're asking people about their experiences rather than how can you contribute to my ministry and what I'm doing. Um, But a great practice is to say, okay, this month 
I want to pray for people in medicine. So I'm going to um, invite the people who are, uh, I want to invite the nurses, the doctors, the drug reps, and we're just going to have a lunch together. And I'm just going to ask them about, hey, what's going on in medicine? What do you love about your job? What breaks your heart? What do you long for? What's your prayer for your hospital? And you just sit there and you take notes just for an hour conversation. And then on the next Sunday, you write a special prayer for them. You ask them to stand. And it takes two minutes in a worship service to do this. You ask them to stand and you write a special prayer of blessing for them. And that does so many things. Number one is you've learned something important about your people. Um, your worship is actually responsive to their experience mm -hmm. rather than your imagination of mm -hmm. what's going on. Mm -hmm. um, and or I even what you've read yeah. in an article or book. It really is the, 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 the lives them. of those. And then finally, those people will never actually forget that. And it took two minutes out of your worship service. Um, but they will never forget that you did that. And they won't forget that prayer. And, you know, they might forget a sermon about faith and work, but they won't forget th that day when they were asked to stand and they were blessed. And so, yeah. This kind of relates to a term you guys use, vocationally conversant yeah. for pastors or worship leaders. Can you, un I think you're, you're hitting on kind of what maybe that might mean, but yeah, can you unpack that term and maybe why, why do we need to become more vocationally conversant, conversant yeah. as leaders? I don't know if the term works or not, yeah. but I, <laughs> I, I'm liking it. So basically the idea here is, um, does worship truly speak do you feel like it actually speaks to your working life, to the, the tears and triumphs of your working life? Or do you feel like it just kind of washes over you with sort of vague spiritual language? Um, and, you know, what I've learned from John Whitfleet and others is, you know, good worship is a dialogue in which um, the people of God bring some stuff and God brings some stuff and you're going back and forth um, and good worship cultivates this dialogue between people and their God. And that's the job of a worship leader. And for many of us, we don't really have the words. Um, we struggle to find the words of what we need to say to God. And a good worship leader helps sort of facilitate that. So sometimes all I have is a groan or a grunt for God, right? And a good worship leader is going to help me articulate myself. Um, so I think that, for the most part, worship leaders understand that that's important, but the words that we're given tend to be very spiritual and abstract and theological. Um, they don't really grab the lived experience of a worker. And so the challenge we're trying to get into is how might you help um, a teacher, a plumber, an administrative assistant, start to actually articulate themselves to God in a worship service. And so we're getting after those questions and trying to provide some resources and ideas for worship leaders to do that. Um, because a, a song like I'll Fly Away, um, it, it, it can't really grab what I'm experiencing in the, in the staff check-in mm -hmm. on Monday mm -hmm. beyond sort of I'll fly out of this. I want to get out of here. Yeah. I mean, if you had a good mandolin, like you were talking about earlier, you might enjoy the song, but oh, yeah. the theology of that on a Monday morning is like, get, yeah, get me out of here, God. Mandolin can cover a multitude, a multitude of, of sins. sins. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I guess, yeah, one of the maybe challenges, and this came from a few conversations earlier, but does becoming more vocationally conversant mean there's a potential for embodying some of the malformities of capitalism or some of the injustices in the work environment or even coming alongside the liturgies of like I constantly need to work I always got to be working and right. can't Sunday be the one place where there's Sabbath and rest from from work how, yeah how would you speak into that question well it can it can certainly become a problem if your worship service is all about blessing work and work is awesome and God loves work and we're going to go out and change the world for Jesus. Um, if your worship is very triumphant and romantic about work, then it can get really bad really fast. So worship leaders need to create space for lament, uh, for exhausting work, for the way that we I 
idolize work, um, the ways that we rush on and on, um, and the ways that we grasp and grind and, and give ourselves to the economy of the world rather than the economy of God. So we need space for confession, we need space for tears, uh, and we need space to actually lay down our work. Um, but I would say to those retorts that um, you don't solve the idolatry of work by not talking about work. You solve it by naming it and laying it down. And um, if we continue to just have worship that's very spiritual and abstract, then that allows workers to just continue idolizing their work um, because they're not told to lay it down. They're not told to offer it. And so it just reinforces um, that our working lives don't belong to God. And that's what we have to fight against. And so the only way out of this problem is actually going through it, you know. So. It, it, this wasn't on my, my the questions I sent you earlier, but as you were sharing that, I'm, I'm thinking about even in childhood when my dad's factory closed or was bought out yeah. and probably... Yeah, a quarter of the church worked there. Some of them worked in upper management, which meant they got a raise and got to go work at the bigger city, like yeah. in the bigger city. Um, and But then another thousand lost their job or the, at least lost their retirement or rehired or lower. Like, But they're all in the same church. Yes. Um, and these, this is where it kind of gets nitty gritty. Like when you bring work into that environment, what are appropriate liturgies, confession that again, honors the, the work of both, both, yeah. both parties, those who are shutting down a plant and getting rich off that, and yeah. those who have essentially lost everything. Like well, that sounds so, as a worship leader, as a pastor, that sounds so hard to deal with that. But I also hear you saying it's absolutely critical to bring this into the space of dialogical encounter with God, where we talk as a community with the Lord. Well, well first off, let's just say that, you know, Every worship leader is going to work in an environment where there are big economic shocks. So the first thing is, can you imagine, I mean, first of all, if you're in a town that's been greatly impacted by this, and this is announced on a Tuesday, and you come into worship on a Sunday, and there's no liturgical response. Mm -hmm. There's nothing. It's just same old praise songs, sermon, and go. Uh, to not be responsive to what is keeping people up at night, what's breaking their hearts. Um, and so many worship leaders wouldn't know how to you know, create a worship service that's responsive to that. So that's a big part of what we're talking about in this book is to be aware. You know, I used to live in, in Houston, and that city lives and dies by oil prices. Of course, well, like the rest of the country loves it when gas prices go down. Uh, Houston does not like that, right? <laughs> so people lose jobs and they lose houses and it's yeah. a massive thing. But to actually, for pastors and worship leaders to be aware of what's going on in your community, be responsive to that. Uh, but what was the other part of your question again? Remind me. Like, yeah, when you have um, vast, different different types of people that are in the same right, work right, environment, right. even in your book, I right. think you talk a little bit about that, of CEO and kind of... Yeah, the janitor, Grassroots, right? yeah, worker, yeah. So, I mean, I think that worship done well um, haunts us with the experiences of people outside of ourselves. So we learn to pray on behalf of people in a class who is different from us. And that goes both ways. Um, so I talk about just the image of um, a CEO standing in line for communion behind the janitor and behind the preschool teacher. And that CEO can reflect on the fact that he can't get to the front of the line because he has more money or more education. Um, but at the table, we all come needy. We all come needy. Um, and that's, that's a great experience of worship can be a leveling force when threat, in the economy of the world, we have all these hierarchies of you have more education, you have more money, you have a higher paying job or you know, more power. So there's that leveling force then there's also um, a force of um, you're going to pray for, for uh, a vocational experience that's not your own. 
So today we're, we're praying for people in retail. You know, but that's not an experience I have. So one way to respond to that is, well, I'm frustrated that we're not praying for me right now, or I can't resonate with this vocational experience, so I'm frustrated. Um, why are we praying for mothers today? I'm not a mother, or whatever. Um, as opposed to, um, as a worship leader saying, okay, we are going to enter into someone else's experience and we're gonna pray for them and with them. So you might love your job, but there are lots of people who don't. And so we're gonna lament that some people are really suffering right now. And I want you to enter into that. And I think one of the things worship can do, like good worship, is fight back against that individualism. Mm -hmm. um, and then the same for people who are on the underside, um, developing a little bit of empathy for people in positions of power who agonize over who they're going to have to lay off and how they're going to have to restructure and uh, you know, enter into that empathy as well. So It's helpful. I've uh, got, got a few questions, and one, one particularly kind of on this area of affirming people's vocation. Zach Hicks, another worship nerd yeah. um, and scholar, um, <laughs> right, asks us this. What worship practices have you seen contribute tangibly to affirming people's vocation in a way that gives them a passion to see their work as ministry? Yeah, you know, I think um, for a lot of people, uh, taking what your church already does with missionaries and then just applying it to their vocations. So often if you have a missionary, uh, you have them come up and give a testimony, and then you have a state of a need and a suffering and how we can pray for you, and then you lay hands on them. Well, why can't you do that for business owners? Why can't you have a business owner come up and give a testimony of what, how they've seen God work in their business and what their longing is and what their need is and how we might pray for them? So you don't have to get new and revolutionary you know, you can take some of the things that your congregation already knows how to do and twist it just a little bit. Um, <laughs> here's the advertisement, worshipforworkers.com. <laughs> worshipforworkers.com has lots of ideas on, on uh, prayers, blessings, um, and things within the book of different creative things. Here's, here's one that my wife did in our church, was she got a six-by-six-foot map of our city. And she put it up at the front of the sanctuary. And uh, when people came forward to take communion, she had them take a little push pin and put um, where you work or where you serve or where you study. Mm -hmm. And every member of the congregation was responsible for placing this is where we are. And it was a way of orienting people of, you know, where is Grace Church? Well, it's not the building. This, we're all over the city. Look at us. We're all over the city serving. Uh, we are not just our food pantry. We are not just our youth shelter. We are um, all on full-time mission in that way. And so all kinds of those little things can help us orient. I've seen that. some churches to impose some visual images under you know, some of the songs that maybe don't directly talk to work and worship, but I've seen like over all the earth was a song in the 90s that you reign on high over everything, mm. drawn from the Psalms. And so, Lord, reign in me is the chorus. So it's very personal. Yes. Reign, and people actually submitted images from yeah. the congregation. So somebody was in their office, someone was teaching. Like, and so, in a sense, there wasn't a, a discussion or even a liturgy about nursing and education and things like that. But the use of image rather than just a little floaty graphic that, you know, feels, it meets the aesthetic, but it connects with, with, um, yeah, with the actual people in the community. And it was, yeah, a beautiful way to take that song, like, yes, rain in me, Lord, but also rain in the lives of, of these others on Monday and Tuesday. Yeah, this has been the thing I've, like, had to learn as an intellectual, that actually words aren't always the best way to communicate mm -hmm. something. And just simply having everyone take a little selfie picture of where they work or study, and then just putting that on a slideshow with music and just letting people pray for their brothers and sisters uh, all over the city who are working can be incredibly powerful. You don't have to say a thing. You don't have to teach them. I mean, the, the images and the worship will do its work, you yeah. know, so yeah. I love that. Another question, this is from the Lit Fellowship Group. In an increasingly remote, 
dispersed, disconnected work environments, particularly thinking about, I think, online and telework, what does community look like and how does one's faith inform healthy practices for forming and sustaining community? Particularly when you're maybe not working together, where there's a dispersed sense and even thinking of maybe the pandemic where there was even dispersed worship in ways that maybe some churches hadn't experienced before. Hmm. Well, I think um, community is all the more important. And for hybrid workers and remote workers, um, the church has an even more urgent need to care for people and create spaces for community. I've talked with some churches who are starting to create uh, remote working spaces. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. Actually, you know, they've, got, they've discovered they've got 70 people in their congregation who work remotely. And they said, okay, on Thursday mornings, we're going to set up a bunch of tables, and you can come and work remotely here. We're going to provide coffee, and we'll have a little bit of community connection. But, you know, remote working can get a little lonely, and you just, sometimes you just want to touch someone on the shoulder. And uh, so churches are starting to do this, or just kind of creating remote working spaces for their neighborhoods. Um, and that's a... It's just an interesting and creative, you know, kind of imaginative it's a way to respond. Brilliant to that. use of space too. That often it's empty from eight to four or something is, yeah, is empty, but also to to foster community. Bruce Benedict, um, also Lit Fellowship guy, writes this: What are resources and skills available to sustain and fight the relentless pressure to sideline faith in the worship? workplace. And he's particularly, as a campus minister, thinking especially of students in their first five years out of college as they create this vocational identity or they embody that. What what can they do to, I think he's talking about maybe in the workplace to yeah. be quiet about your faith, don't don't share. I think that's what he's what he's hitting on. What what resources or even skills are needed? So this is getting at our, our second volume. Uh, we're we're going to be writing a follow-up mm-hmm. book to Work and Worship, which explores worship practices during the week. Um, A few stories um, just from workers that we know. One is um, a doctor, she she does rounds and she's very, very busy, um, sort of rushed around the hospital and um, is hard on herself for not doing her devotions because she's she's so busy. but she had developed this practice of as she would walk into the hospital room, she'd place her hand on the doorpost. This is like a physical reminder. Slow yourself down. Be present. This is a holy space with a person made in the image of God. I need to be present with this patient. Um, another medical example, this uh, nurse who cares for babies felt a lot of anxiety about the homes that some of these babies are going into. And it, it impacted her work and her heart. Her anxiety became intense. And she had developed just a little prayer for herself that as she washed the baby for the first time and wrapped the baby up, just a, a prayer of blessing and protection over the baby as she hands the baby back to the mother. Um, there's a man who works in a, a cubicle. And uh, uh, he had put just this little piece of tape uh, at the, the entrance to his cubicle. And his, he understands this is... This is holy ground. This is my parish. And when someone steps across that line, um, I'm responsible for them. And I want to create, you know, an environment of hospitality and care. Um, and that helped him uh, remind himself of that. Another one, he, he sits down at his desk and has, has, decides to do his devotions early in the morning before people are there. Uh, and he takes off his shoes <laughs> at his desk just to remind himself, hey, this is holy ground. Um, hmm. Last one, construction worker uh, at a particularly toxic construction site. Um, he does a little prayer walk every morning just to pray for protection um, as, he, as he moves around. Now, there's a number of elements in each of these little stories. Number one, no one taught these workers to do this. So it kind of came out of a sense of urgency. Uh, they involve bodies, so like physical triggers. Um, they involve... Um, repetition, they're often directly related to a sense of need or a vice um, that they're struggling with. Uh, they made it themselves. Um, and these things work really slowly over time. Um, so much more to say about that, but that's like a big interest for Corey and I. Uh, like without any prompting, these workers 
are developing little things. Last thing I'll say, because we've talked a little bit about secular liturgies. Guy on, guy on uh, TikTok, <laughs> I'm not normally on TikTok, but it's important to say. Uh, uh, someone passed this along to me. Uh, blue collar guy um, drives up in his pickup truck home and he's sitting in his driveway and he's waiting to go in. And he's just sitting in his car, just taking deep breaths. And it just says, if you know, you know. And like the response to this is massive. Everybody knew what he was doing. And what he was doing was he's been beat up all day at work, hates his job, stressed out, frustrated. And he's about to go in to see his wife and children. And he knows that he needs to decompress for two minutes so he doesn't take this out on his family. And he's suffering. Mm -hmm. Not a Christian, not mm -hmm. praying, mm -hmm. but he needs some kind of transition. And so there's this yearning amongst workers for these practices. Um, and that's what we really want to kind of dig into. And then the question for us as worship leaders and pastors is, okay, if people are desperate for this, how might we start to give people a little prompting um, for how they might begin to practice the presence of God as they work? Is there, are there things that we can do to help them? Because like, what would it mean to provide pastoral care to that man? You know, how do you think about that? I mean, it's something I think yeah. about a lot. Yeah. I'm excited to yeah, see that book come to fruition. Yeah, me too. <laughs> for, for listeners that have, have stuck with us this long and those in the room, Kind of the second to last question is very niche. I didn't think we'd even get to it. Um, it comes from your wife. This will show something about you and maybe her, but I'll, I'll, I'll throw in the opportunity to make it even more Dort-esque. Yeah, theological tie between worship theology and 30 Rock from a <laughs> neo-Calvinist perspective. I would say if, if you don't want to go with 30 Rock, The Office or Star Wars are also appropriate for our Northwest Iowa reformed community. <laughs> what connects workplace theology, 30 Rock, and a neo-Calvinist perspective? <laughs> well, 30 Rock is one of my favorite shows, and so my, <laughs> wife, my wife lovingly wants to give me a chance to talk about 30 Rock. So Liz Lemon is this, for those who have, haven't watched the show, Liz Lemon is uh, you know, a, a lovely sort of memorable character. She's, she works in New York. She's a single woman running this uh, TV show. She's very busy. Um, and uh, it's, you know, Liz Lemon, Tina Fey. Tina is very um, self-deprecating, you know, like, my life is a mess. And uh, she has this mentor, Jack Donaghy, whose, like, job is to try to get her to become an adult and, like, grow up and get her life together. And she never really does it throughout <laughs> the entire series. You know, her, her life is a bit of a mess. Um, I think, how could I tie that to work and worship? I think I would say that um, uh, when we welcome people into worship on a Sunday morning, um, I can remember a worship director saying, hey, guys, I know you've all had a big week. You've got a lot on your minds, a lot of things going on. Uh, you're being pulled in lots of different directions. But for the next hour, I just want to encourage you to leave that at the door, and we're just going to worship God. What a terrible thing to say to workers, to leave that at the door, and we're just going to be spiritual now. With one little twist, he could have said, guys, I know you've got a lot going on. You're being pulled in lots of directions, got a lot of projects, a lot of things you're thinking about. For the next hour, I want to encourage you to bring that to God, to offer that, to lay it down, and... Um, <laughs> and so the tie there for Liz Lemon <laughs> is, is, you know, she's, she's a mess. She knows she's a mess. She's, she's she can't hold her personal life together, her professional life together. Um, and I think that as worship leaders, when we welcome people in worship, those first few sentences are so important to acknowledge to them, hey, your mess is welcome here. This is not a place for pretend. And I think that, I guess the word I would use for a worship leader's vocation in the first three minutes of a worship service is hospitality. Hospitality. 
bring your family, bring your work, bring your mess, bring it here. And that's why I was so grateful that that first song that was written for this new album is bring it to the altar, set it on the stone, whatever you carry. You know, I just, I just, I'm really grateful for those songwriters that, that created that hospitable space with their songs. And even in those first words or that opening song, if you're using something like that, you're beginning to build that, yeah, bridge that between work and worship. Yeah, because you got to build that trust with workers, that trust that they can they can be themselves here, you know. So. Yeah, as we wrap up, I'd love to hear any challenge or encouragement that you might have for worship leaders, those studying theology and worship, musicians, those artists serving in churches that might be listening. What might you either challenge them or or encourage them with? Yeah, well, we've talked a lot about the welcome. Um, and the hospitality, but maybe we just kind of close by talking about the sending. Mm -hmm. Constance Cherry, um, who I I really love her writing, um, she really brought me to this, of the importance of ending a service with a blessing and a charge. So, you know, sometimes we end a worship service with like a dismissal. See you next week. Yeah, see you next week, or a thanks for coming. coming. (laughs) Sounds like thanks for coming to my show, right? Um, But actually sending people with purpose Constance says we need to, with a blessing, a transition, and a charge. So God be with you. God has, has done this great work in you. Therefore, go now and extend your worship into the world. This has not been a moment of worship. This has been the beginning of a week of worship. So you have received these gifts at this table, these gifts of grace. Go and share. this. What we have done here has consequences. So my, my closing charge is um, to give a charge, to, to remind people that the things they've said here have consequences for tomorrow, um, and that God goes before and with them and beside them. So that, that reassurance, that blessing, that it's not all on them, but also that, that sense of what are you going to do with what you know? How will this worship continue to resonate? Um, for those before you. I think that'd be my my closing, yeah. Matthew, thanks for joining today on Worship Theology Podcast, and particularly thanks to Dort, Production Arts at Dort, Andreas Center, friends hanging out in the room. It was a joy to have you. Oh, man, so great, so great. And uh, thank you so much for these these conversations and really pushing people to, you know, and encouraging them to think deeply about the importance of this uh, worship vocation. So thanks, Jeremy.